Hello and welcome to Just Plain Sense, the Equality and Diversity Podcast. Hello again, I'm Christine Burns. Well, my guest for this episode has been compared with Marmite. You either love her or hate her. Julie Bindle is best known publicly as an outspoken Guardian columnist. Indeed, in the week when we had long planned to meet for lunch and record this interview, she was in the midst of a big controversy about some of the things she had said and written about transsexual people over the years. We decided we'd address that controversy as part of the interview. But my original plan had been to look at Julie in a more rounded way. She makes no bones about her identity and what this brings to her thinking. She's a radical lesbian feminist. She's also highly respected for her campaigning on the issues of violence against women and the way that our legal system responds to women who defend themselves. She set up the feminist law reform campaign Justice for Women in 1990. I began by asking Julie whether that was all a fair sketch. Had I left anything out? No, I don't think so. I mean, my passion really is uh, speaking out against sexual violence towards women and children and uh, also making sure that there's a voice that challenges orthodoxy. Tell us a little bit about your upbringing. Well, I grew up in the northeast of England in a working class uh, community on a council estate. Um, my father was a steel worker, my mother did um, shop work. I have two brothers, very traditional working class, happy childhood. But Darlington, where I ended up living, was not really the kind of place where you're going to make your mark in the world. And for a working-class girl, and also one that wanted to be an out lesbian and be involved in feminism, I knew that uh, I would have to move away to be able to fulfil that. So at 16, I left home and uh, moved to Leeds um, and met the lesbian feminist community there when I was 17 years old. Now that brings us on to, to that aspect of your identity. I know you've argued that sexual orientation is learned and it's not innate. So if I can put it this way, when did you develop an awareness of yourself as a lesbian? Well, I don't think that being a lesbian or a gay man is a choice like what washing powder to use or what you fancy for your lunch. I do think, however, that it has to be either that you are born a lesbian or a gay man, a gay person, or that you learn it through socialisation. I don't think it can be one, it can be anywhere in the middle. Um, for me, um, I did feel that um, I didn't want to be heterosexual, I didn't want to have boyfriends, I didn't feel sexually attracted to boys at school and so I suppose when it was about 14, 15 when you, your sexuality is emerging anyway through puberty that I realised that my attraction was to girls um, or uh, adult women um, it was possibly around the age of 12 or 13 but the, but the driver as such really was that was discovering who you felt attracted to well, I think it was, but if I look back before then, living in a household with three men, three males, my two brothers and my father, all quite traditional, um, and seeing the way that women were put upon, had to work harder, uh, were definitely oppressed and 
with a lower status than men, it did attract me to want to live outside of that particular role. I didn't want to get married to the boy down the road and end it with children and a life of drudgery and oppression. I wanted to be free to be able to be an independent individual. And I suppose because in the 70s, the issue of well, the idea that you could actually live as a lesbian was just starting because of the women's movement, that attracted me to it. How do you think it's moulded who you are then? Well, my lesbian identity is a very, very central one. I don't feel that it's everything to me. I mean, being a woman, being a lesbian, there's lots of other identities, being born working class, um, all sorts of issues like that. But it's very important because when I came out as a lesbian in 1978, it was so bound up with feminism that it meant that it was a very liberating thing to do. In other words, it wasn't just about loving women, wanting to live your life with women because you're also fighting a cause with them, which is against male oppression, but that you had an opportunity to critique heterosexuality. Now, heterosexuality is perfectly fine for some people. A lot of people are very happy within it, but a lot of women and men are very unhappy actually living heterosexual lives. And to me, lesbianism isn't just good in and of itself, but it's actually a good alternative to heterosexuality. Some people have said, of course, that in order to be a good feminist, you do have to be a lesbian. Well, I used to say that also. Um, when we were in the heyday of our lesbian feminist politics, and now, of course, lesbianism is very separate from feminism, unfortunately, in many respects, with lesbian lifestyle not re being reliant on feminism or having a feminist consciousness at all, unfortunately, and for many, uh, many heterosexual women being very good feminists. Um, but I do think that it can add an edge to your politics. Not having sex with women, I mean, which of course might be one aspect of having a lesbian identity or relationship, but the actual sense that you share your life in total, in all the bits that matter with women, that they are your primary, um, I suppose, um, partner in both, you know, in love and war. In a way, I think our modern culture seems to have largely sidelined feminism, perhaps because of the sort of bad press it's been given in the past. And there seems to be a whole generation of young women who might think it's irrelevant or that things like girl power replaces it. So if you only had a few seconds, how would you sum up what feminism means now and why it is relevant to women and men? Most of the goals that we devised for ourselves in the 1970s have not been achieved. In fact, what the suffragettes said 100 years ago, um, not just about voting, but about sexual autonomy, about women being able to live their lives free of the oppression and brutality from men, for example, having to have children, all of those issues still stand. It's as relevant today as it ever was. And for young women who deny uh, feminism who say that it hasn't got an important part in their life well quite frankly what I'd say to them is try earning 50% less than men try uh, living your life with three children and no childcare try going to report rape when you're not believed this is what feminism has actually changed and so it's as relevant today as it ever was for me okay that brings us on to your, your work as a, as a writer especially in The Guardian of course, it's earned you a very clear reputation. Do you enjoy that sort of reputation? And do you think it's fair? Do you enjoy provoking thought? Well, 
I think they're two questions. I do like provoking thought because that's my job. And as a feminist and as a writer, that's my job. But I don't ever, ever set out to be controversial. And there'll be people listening to this who think that that's absolute nonsense. I am controversial, but to me it's common sense. Now, I've said some things in the past that are ridiculous, that I now think are wrong, misguided. I don't always stand by things I've said in the past, and in fact I think that that's um, a position that I'm very proud of because I learn all the time and, and, and politics evolve, don't they? But no, I don't ever set out to be controversial. The question, do I enjoy it? Well, I don't enjoy some of the vitriol that I get about things that I've written which seem to me perfectly reasonable or tongue-in-cheek for example saying that vegetarians can be humorless I still get emails about that today five years after I wrote it what what do you like about being a columnist the most then well I love being able to write down my thoughts and have people read them because it means that you're actually being heard and I know that many people don't read me and I know that many people might read me and it goes in one ear and out of the other and some will of course disagree with me but at least it means that I have a platform and it's a very, very privileged position to be in and it's, it, it, it comes with it, I think there's a lot of responsibility attached to a job like mine and I haven't always, always been perfectly um, sound in respecting the, the amount of power that it gives but I think I'm now very, very aware of it and you should always, always make sure you don't abuse the power that you have to have such a strong platform. I, I guess one of the things, of course, is in, in the past years you could write something and it was on the, bo the bottom of the budget's cage the next day. These days, things stay forever on the internet. You can be called to account for something you've said years ago. Oh, yes, yes. I mean, there's, there are things that I've written that I feel a little bit embarrassed about or things that I've written where I think I would take a different line now and they do follow you around and actually that's part of the job and you should expect it if you're going to be controversial and if you're going to be writing for a liberal newspaper but take a, a line that's against the grain on something What's been your favourite assignment? Well my first big assignment was in Jamaica looking at female sex tourists who um, might not recognise themselves as such but who are white in the main women from Europe and from North America who go to countries such as Jamaica um, and pretty much pay for sex with young men who have very little opportunity in life to do anything else um, and I really liked that assignment because it was something a little bit different from looking at the abuse that men actually um, the acts of abuse that men commit towards women but looking at how gender and race interact um, these women did have power over those young men um, but it wasn't the same as male on female prostitution although there were some similarities but I very much liked talking to the young men and asking them about their perceptions of the women for example it gave me a different perspective on masculinity and on race than other work that I'd done now, I'm going to come back and ask you about your work on violence against women and prostitution in a moment, but what I wanted to go on to next, I mean, a week ago I would never have even asked you this, but you've suddenly been immersed in, in a huge controversy over something that you wrote um, some time ago. You've recently been nominated as Journalist of the Year in the annual Stonewall Awards. Um, 
But that's sparked a big controversy from many transsexual people or transgender people who are concerned about the public position you've taken on their lives in The Guardian on the radio. So for the benefit of listeners who aren't aware, I mean, I'm going to say, you know, I led complaints against you when you wrote in The Guardian in 2004. Um... Since then, you've returned to that topic about trans people uh, twice on the radio and one, once more in a, in a blog piece for The Guardian's comment is free. Why has the issue interested you in this way? Well, as a feminist, I'd like to see an end to gender. I'd like to see men and women um, being able to live their lives free of the rules of gender that are imposed on us from a very young age. Now, for women those rules are very, very detrimental. And I think that our gender um, is something which is used, I mean, the way that we're supposed to act, the way we're supposed to behave in relation to men, is used as part of our oppression. Uh, I think for many men, they'd like to actually be free of their gender constraints. So looking at the idea of transsexualism very much interested me because it struck me that 1950s psychiatrists who came up with, correct me if I'm wrong, the, uh, the syndrome, if you like, the diagnosis of gender dysphoria, um, were rooted very firmly in gender polarisation. So if you behaved in a way that was not seen fitting as a boy uh, or as a girl, then you were offered a surgical solution to correct that. And I saw it as those psychiatrists being very much the gender defenders keep women as women and men as men and what I was trying to do do try to do as a feminist is to dissolve those differences between men and women you said you you saw it does that mean does that indicate that your your view is changing no I, my view hasn't changed on I think the 1950 psychiatrists are very not not known for their liberal attitudes I think um, who operated in during the time that the diagnosis was first actually um, coming into fruition. I'm very, very clear um, that it is totally against the work of feminism in challenging gender roles when traditional psychiatrists and medical practitioners see men and women as odd or suffering from a syndrome if they behave outside of their gender norms. And I do think that practice still continues in diagnosing people as transgender or transsexual but obviously what I have learnt is that those practices are shifting because of the education of some people within the transsexual community such as yourself. Okay because one, one comment on a Facebook group that was protesting your nomination said the following and it was addressed to you uh, she said I really really wish I, I could say something to make you understand how much pain and damage you've caused to people who've never set out to harm others. W would you like to respond to that? Well, I think some of the things... Well, I know some of the things I said in my 2004 column in Weekend uh, was hurtful and offensive and could actually incite um, offensive behaviour towards transsexual people. But I, everything that I've actually written and said, I would argue, since then has actually not been to hurt or cause offence to people in the community, but has been to start a debate, or to continue with the debate, about the so-called condition and about surgery as a solution to the diagnosis of transgenderism, transsexualism. Um, obviously, being told that I'm 
a bigot or that I've caused hurt and pain um, is something that's, you know, I don't take lightly because my work and my life has been about reducing um, the bigotry that, that people face, obviously, particularly women with sexual violence and, and misogyny. <laughs> But, yeah, I think you're saying you're, you're listening. And, actually, I think I would support the view that, that in a way, by, by some of what you've done, you have actually sparked a debate as well. And it may be a debate in which people disagree with you and, and you change your perspective, but at least it's a debate. Well, it is a debate, and it's one that I welcome. And what I do welcome is that there are members of the trans community, such as yourself, Stephen Whittle, and some others, who have been willing to engage with me on this and haven't actually closed the door in my face, despite the fact uh, that uh, I did write, you know, the tone in my 2004 article was actually deeply offensive. And, I mean, if, if it would help people, would, would you actually go so far as to say something like, sorry, or something? Oh, I, I would unreservedly apologise for the tone in that article. I absolutely stand by the core premise, um, which was my anger at a particular member of the community who almost brought a rape crisis centre to its knees. Um, I, I have not changed my position on that case at all. Um, I think that some of the... I mean, to, to use a column to make jokes about an oppressed minority and to make jokes that actually would feed into the prejudices of bigots was unforgivable, and I absolutely reservedly apologise. Let's look at another side of this, because I think some trans women have also, and I think this is particularly trans women, have complained that you've repudiated their identities as women or as lesbians if they identify that way. Again, if I, if I quote from the, the protest side, uh, somebody quotes you from your 2004 article saying, I don't have a problem with men disposing of their genitals, but it does not make them women, in the same way that shoving a bit of vacuum hose down your 501s does not make you a man. Again, how do you respond? I mean, for instance, you're sitting here where we've just had lunch together. Am I a woman, for instance? Well, I think that you have a right to self-determination. Um, the problem that I have is the essential view of what a woman is. And um, the fact that I've been told I'm not a real woman uh, by bigots who don't like lesbians, for example, um, you know, is deeply offensive. And I do think we all have a right to self-determination. My problem is that we have a situation where I'm trying to move away from acting and behaving as and being seen as a real woman. When some transsexual women, seem, seems to me, are trying to move closer towards the traditional view of what a woman is, which therefore, of course, affects badly the work that I'm doing. So it's not about who's a real woman or not. Actually, I want us to move away from the notion of a real woman. Everyone has a right to self-determination. It's more about what do you mean by that? What is a woman? What makes you a woman? And part of that has to be the socialisation that we experience when we grow up. Now, that's only really relevant if we're talking about particular issues that affect girls as living as girls in girls' bodies as they're growing up. Otherwise, I don't know. What, what does make you a woman? What makes you a man? You know, it strikes me that there's so much, actually, that common ground that can be found with trans women, but in a way, we need to have those discussions. Would, I mean, would you welcome more dialogue with, with trans people so that there can be better understanding? I definitely would welcome more dialogue, and I think what I would love is a structured discussion, not a debate like the heckless one that I was involved in with Stephen Whittle, the Radio 4 programme, but one where we actually have 
time to speak, each of us, state oppositions, then an open forum, not a bun fight mm. and not, uh, you know, a sort of heated argument, but a heated debate. And I've been thinking of how important it is for me to put down on paper my views, my thoughts on this issue, because so much has been misunderstood about my views that I really do need to defend my position but also clarify what I'm not saying as well as what I am saying. So that's what I intend to do in the near future, but I would love a debate. Okay, one more question in this area and then I think we'll move on to you know, the, the work you do and perhaps you're, you're also better known for as well. Um, because there have been complaints about the way you describe the medical profession's involvement with trans people. I mean, some have likened your views to support for what they call reparative or ex-gay therapy and one consultant from the Charing Cross Gender Identity Clinic has described you as and I quote, spectacularly misinformed so, which actually that's a pretty serious um, issue for a journalist, so again how do you respond? Well the, there's a difference between being spectacularly uninformed and certainly my expertise does not extend to anywhere near the person who made that accusation or yourself Christine and actually having a different opinion and I have a different opinion. And so there, I think that we have to look at objectivity and subjectivity. And often the two are confused. And so there's, you know, my, my opinion is my truth. And it can shift. It's fluid. Um, but, you know, there's obviously facts. And if I get facts wrong, then I want to know about that. And I will openly correct it. And if ever I get anything wrong in terms of fact in my journalism, I always openly admit it and apologise for it. So all the messages coming across here is that there's a lot of room for having this, this, this discussion. I wouldn't call it a debate. It's coming off the ramparts and actually getting together, well, as we've done today, over a, nice, a very nice meal and having a, a, a chat without, without taking positions. That's right. And I think that the more we talk to each other, the more that we'll understand properly where we're coming from. And even if we fundamentally disagree on some core issues, if we have a respect for each other where we're coming from, and if we can trust that we're not trying to hurt each other or be, you know, one be a better woman than the other, for example, um, then I think we can move forward. And at least if we're talking, there's a lot less of a chance for vitriol, dislike and ultimately hatred to form between two groups that really should talk to each other more. Well, at this point we ran out of time. I had wanted to go on and talk in much more depth about why Julie had set up the feminist law reform campaign Justice for Women in 1990 and more in general about the really big issue of violence against women. In truth, the food, the wine and our friendly exchange of knowledge meant we'd overrun though and a taxi was waiting outside to take Julie on to her next appointment. I hope we'll come back to those topics another day. This is a podcast about all aspects of equality and diversity and things like violent abuse and prostitution are topics I'm keen to cover. Talking about the trans controversy was important though, the more so because it's apparent that Julie really did want to listen and learn where she'd made mistakes and welcomed opportunities to talk about that. For now though, that brings us to the end of another episode of Just Plain Sense. If you've enjoyed it, then there are plenty of previous programmes to listen to. You'll find them all at podcast.plain-sense.co.uk. You can also subscribe via iTunes. Look for Just Plain Sense in the online store. For now, it's goodbye. A special thank you to my guest, Julie Bindle, and thank you all for listening. Just Plain Sense is a Plain Sense Limited production. Mm-hmm.